The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. So many systems feel impossible to change, right? I mean, I think of teachers here, or nurses and doctors, anyone working in a large institution or within a big company. Today's episode is about how change can happen, how we can help it happen from within. My guest is Judge Victoria Pratt. She's executive director of Odyssey Impact and the author of The Power of Dignity, How Transforming Justice Can Heal Our Communities. See that word there, heal? Judge Pratt believes in reforming the criminal justice system. Her book is built around the question of what justice can look like when it's built around a foundation of respect. Judge Pratt is a former chief judge of Newark Municipal Court. That's New Jersey's largest municipal court system. In her time on the bench, Judge Pratt transformed her courtroom into a place that could both punish, but also heal. It became a place where problems could be solved and communities could support one another. It became a place of hope. In our conversation today, Judge Pratt will push us to consider how we all have agency. We choose how we treat each other. And we also choose how we can act as leaders within our own families, communities, companies. She'll introduce an idea called procedural justice, and she'll explain how it applies to everyone's circumstances. It's a leadership framework forged in that courtroom that can be applied just about anywhere. Here's Judge Victoria Pratt. As a young girl, I decided that I wanted to change the world, and there was nothing anyone could say to me that could dissuade me from it, or that there was a possibility that this little colored girl from New Jersey could do something that could make life better. And I spent a lot of time seeing folks impacted by systems, not just the justice system, but what poverty looks like, what it looks like to be an immigrant in this country. I am the daughter of an African-American garbage man who spent his summers in the segregated South. My father never felt like he had the full rights of citizenship in this country. Um, soy la hija de una peluquera dominicana, and what that means to be the firstborn child of a Spanish-speaking immigrant or any other language immigrant. And so I spent a lot of time advocating and really seeing how injustice impacted my family. I ended up back in Newark when um, Cory Booker ran and uh, became mayor. And they started appointing all these new judges. I was like, wow, what an awesome opportunity to really impact a person's life, which is at the front door of justice, right? When people, most people will only see the municipal court, but it's really what drags people into court, all of their social ills, all of their problems. For our listeners who may not have ever been in a municipal court mm. or understand what that means, like, what is the significance of a municipal court? Who ends up there? Your traffic matters are at the municipal court, the lower level criminal matters, criminal trespass, domestic violence, simple assault cases. And you'll also have theft, different levels of theft. Uh, but in a place like the city of Newark probably produced, at one point produced like 65% of the criminal cases that went up to the superior court, many of those cases that are more seriously 
dealt with at the superior court level get downgraded. So they get sent back down to the municipal court to be dealt with. And so it's a lot of the mentally ill homeless woman who is violating what's called quality of life uh, charges. And those could be sleeping in public, drinking in public, smoking in public. But when you're homeless, the public is your home. Right. And so those people end up with criminal offenses, actually, even if they end up with a city offense, which is not necessarily a criminal offense, they're facing up to 30 days in jail. And what puts them in this cycle is how we are required to adjudicate their cases, which means when they come before you, you impose costs and fines. And so the municipal court's minor contacts with the criminal justice system that have major impact on a person's life. So they get a fine. You're a homeless person. You get a fine. We know you can't pay it. I impose that fine so that you can go home and you get set free. But as soon as you don't pay that fine, another bench warrant issues for your arrest. So now the officers pick you up because now you owe a debt, which is a violation of the court's order. You didn't pay. And you end up on this conveyor belt of injustice. That's really what it is. And people get picked up multiple times, multiple times for years on these cases until someone decides to either give this person jail time for the money that was initially imposed or to just finally vacate that fine. As I read your book and I read about so many of the examples that you cited, most of the people were guilty simply of acting out in a moment of perhaps upset while in poverty. Like their guilt was their poverty, which of course makes no sense at all. It doesn't, but that's what I mean about we have these laws of annoyance, right? These laws that say, oh, that guy stole a $5 candy bar at Newark Penn Station or New York Penn Station. Should he? Steal? Probably not. But should we make a space for him to eat? Yes, we should. Just I'm talking about homelessness because homelessness is created when those who are in charge of our municipalities or our places, when people get gentrified out of a neighborhood, where do they go? They've lived there. There's no place for them to live. And so instead of us forcing developers to create space or to help us deal with this social ill that we know is going to happen when people get driven out of their homes. What happens when a person's mentally ill and they're not taking their medication? They end up on the street. They end up in places creating noise. And so being a disorderly person is causing alarm. So if you're not on your medication and you're decompensating somewhere, you're screaming and yelling, oh, that's a violation of the law. And you get a trip to the courthouse, actually to the city jail, as opposed to the hospital, which is where you are best suited, where there's medication to deal with those issues. And it's counterintuitive. So you are appointed to the bench and you become a new judge in this environment that you have described. What does sentencing look like and what do you learn about it early on? That I'm in a place with a lot of broken, sick, hungry, mentally ill, like physically ill people and that what we're doing makes no sense and that I come from a space of service. So when you see someone with a need, you serve them. And the bench was not that. The bench was processing. As I said, we were like in this hallucination where we were processing and imposing fines and we knew folks couldn't do anything about them. I mean, even in a traffic matter, if a person's lost their job and they've got fines to pay and you're like, okay, pay $100 a month. How? Right. And then the only recourse is for them to go to jail. 
And so it was sad. It was just sad to go to work and feel I felt useless. Well, and there's one other piece that I found fascinating about this, which is that you were familiar with this community. Sometimes people would come into the courthouse that you actually oh, knew. Yeah. Ain't you right? Miss Elsie's daughter? Oh, my God, you got to go. You got to go. Yes, Miss Elsie's daughter in this community or people who I had served when I was serving as a municipal council. So knowing and seeing them in their fullness, but knowing that people are more than an act, knowing that people are more than just this one thing that happened. But we also negate who we are. So I bring all my experiences when I show up. Right. And so one of the problems I think that many judges have and many people who are in a position of authority is that when they show up to leadership, they forget all of the good stuff that was put in them. They forget all of the good experiences that they had and they behave another way. And one of the things I told folks, I said, listen, I can get out of trouble that I cause for myself, but I can't get out of trouble that I cause acting like someone else. So if I have an understanding of a community, that's what I'm supposed to bring. If you're a leader and you're kind and insightful and can read people, you're supposed to bring that to your style of leadership because that's what helps you move organization forward. That helps you use all the jewels and nuggets that are in you. But too often we We don't value those things. So I value that my parents taught me to treat people with dignity and respect because I also saw how people didn't treat them. So I brought that with me to the bench. Now, people are like, oh, why is that important? Why is that important? Because the law requires for you to give people orders and for those orders to be obeyed. And they can't be obeyed if people don't see you as a legitimate authority. Again, in leadership, if people don't see you as a legitimate authority to impose rules and regulations, they don't do them. That's why people leave your meetings and go back to doing whatever the heck they were doing before. Let's zoom out here. Judge Pratt's talking about judges in a courtroom, but she's also talking about any leaders. Why do you respect the authority anyone else around you has? And how do you convey authority yourself? I want you to really think about this question as you listen. I didn't know that I was doing this thing because I was treating people with dignity and respect and they would come back and they would do the things that I would ask them to do and they would help themselves by doing those things. And then someone came to see me in court and they were like, is this how you naturally behave? There's research on this thing in the way you engage in court. And it's called procedural justice. And this concept that says that if people are treated with dignity and respect and fairly by the justice system, not only will they comply with court orders, they obey the law, which means you reduce crime, but they are also, they trust the system and it also reduces crime. And I was like, oh, okay. But there was research and I'm curious. So obviously, so I started looking at this. And so there are these four things that you do with procedural justice. And I got to tell you, I use procedural justice in everything, even, you know, in my relationships. You know, the first one is voice, making sure people have an opportunity to tell their story. Um, and voice as simple as just telling them when you're not going to let them to speak. But letting people speak, sometimes we're going through so quickly, particularly in the justice system where we're just processing and moving calendars, that people never get an opportunity to speak. And I found there was so much information, meaningful information lost when I didn't let people speak or, um, you know, the example of this young woman who came through who was a high school student and she got picked up on a unlawful weapons charge and we found out it was like a kitchen knife when they finally downgraded and sent her to us and fortunately we had a Newark youth court and it's a restorative justice process we sent her there and when she came back to read her essay she says 
judge, I never meant to hurt anyone. I just am scared. I'm scared all the time. And I sleep with my knife under my pillow. And I missed it in court. Like I heard her say it, but I was, later I went home. And because my work is a mission and my assignment, I keep hearing things. And I called someone. I said, find out why this child is sleeping with this knife underneath her pillow. And we found out that her mother's boyfriend had been molesting her. Now, this girl walked into a school every day where there were police officers who the only time they noticed her or heard her was when they found this knife in her pocketbook and processed her. Yep. But she never felt enough trust to have voice to tell them that this thing was going on. And so that, to me, is like really what's meaningful about giving people because you learn so much more than what's just in front of you and what your own mind can see. So this gets to, let's call it your signature move, Judge Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> you assign Essays. essays. I say More essays. often than not. Like, yes. what, that is not the first thing that would occur to me were I in that position. So <laughs> how did you come up with this and, and where does it fit into yes. your practice? So I saw that there was a judge who assigned essays and he'd put them in the draw. He would read them and put them in the draw. But they really allow people to have some autonomy and I guess this agency. And I believe that people know how to heal themselves. It's just getting to it. And sometimes the voices of all the things that are around you, they're so loud you can't get to it. So again, these are people who are marginalized, who because of racism, no one hears them. Because of illness, no one hears them. And you say, I want to hear your side of this. And they would write these incredible essays. And it would be amazing to me what people would pour into them. And I'd sit there and listen and nod. I'm like, wow. They would usually, when I first started giving these essays out, they would start with anger. Oh, I don't know why Judge Pratt asked me to write this stupid essay. And then they'd go on. And then by the end of the essay, they'd answer the question. So if the question is, if I knew then what I know now, how would my life be different? Well, if you're an addict, you are running on that hamster wheel dealing with the same question over and over. So the thing that if you had known then can help you now. Or one of my favorites, which was a really tough one, is if I believe one positive thing about myself, how would my life be different? The essay was important, but what was more important was that for two weeks before they came back to court, they were thinking about positive attributes of themselves. And who's doing that? Who's doing that in the midst of poverty? Who's doing that in the midst of abuse? And they come back and they just write these things. So even when folks said to me, well, how could you ask these people to do that? I'm like, look, think about how little I would have to think of a person to not give them, to think they don't have the right to express themselves and to not give them the opportunity to do it. So essays were fantastic because of that. And sometimes people would say things in court that you would be able to mostly correct. Like, that's right. not true about you. That is not the case. And so they just became powerful. But they also became <laughs> that thing that people be like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to go see Judge Pratt. She likes to make people write essays. I'm like, you might go to jail. <laughs> but really holding folks accountable because once they've processed something, they can't come back from that. They now know this positive thing. And then my favorite thing was everyone clapping for them, right? And so it's the first time somebody claps for you. And I started to notice that people would bring relatives, almost like a graduation, uh -huh. because they were proud of this thing that they had done. And I'm thinking, my God, this is an essay in a courtroom, in a place that you're going to for punishment, and you bring people there because this judge sees you and the staff sees you, and people are going to clap for you, and you want them to see that. Judge Pratt introduced four aspects to procedural justice. The second involves how you comport yourself. 
So when ensuring that people feel that they're treated with dignity and respect and fairly, neutrality is paramount. People have to believe that the process is neutral. And this is often difficult for judges or people in authority who believe that they are behaving with neutrality. But the person who's receiving it has to see it and feel it. And so it requires a constant ego check. I think that anytime you're in a position of leadership or have some institutional authority over people, it requires constantly checking the ego. So neutrality is how you treat everyone. I want to just take a pause on the matter of ego. I felt like your book could have a second subhead called um, Combating the Ego, because there were so many moments in your book that hinged on somebody and not always you, some uh, court officer or police officer taking a step back mm-hmm. from the moment that they were triggered to let their own ego mm-hmm. speak and um, and throttling their ego. Yes. I understand that maybe you can get to the point where you do that as a leader. But how do you compel others to do that in a system that encourages them to do just the opposite? Well, if you are a leader, it's your responsibility to make sure people are checking their egos. And so one of the things that we're afraid to do when we are in positions of leadership is ensuring that. Yeah. Right. So there's a prosecutor in your courtroom and they're behaving disrespectfully. It's checking that. Yeah. Madam prosecutor, I can hear you from over here. That's not how we talk to people in my courtroom. Right. Checking that publicly. Publicly. In, in front of all the yes, stakeholders. Because yeah. you expect me to check a defendant who comes and behaves disrespectfully. Mm-hmm. But I am the ultimate authority in that courtroom. Again, we're on this idea of neutrality. And neutrality is also that. It's making sure that everyone gets the same level of treatment. So if everyone in this space has to behave respectfully, that means that the judge has to be careful. Oh, where's my prosecutor? No, that's the prosecutor. They don't work for you. They're not yours. Where's my police officer? No, that's the executive branch. And really respecting who you are. Again, this idea that... The ego, and we're seeing it. We're, we're seeing. We just saw it in this last killing. we just. We saw it. No one said stop. Yeah. This is about unleashing this wrath of violence on this person, and no one said, "Whoa, whoa, stop! This is not right." Right. 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 Because the ego was like, "Oh no, I'm down with them." So they have some authority over this person's body, or they believe they do, so that they can behave this way. And here you are talking, just for our listeners who may listen to it in the mm-hmm. month, right? Here you're talking about the atrocious events in Memphis. Amen. That's exactly what I'm talking about. What happened to the person who was supposed to stop that? Who so when I started doing this stuff, people thought, oh, this new judge, she's nuts. She don't even know what she's doing, talking to these people. And I would hear them on because they would be on the bench talking about me, right? Yeah. But I had a note on the bench that said, stay focused on the goal no matter what's happening. And I know that the only way you change people's minds is getting outcomes and the results that I wanted. And so when new officers would come in, they'd be like, oh, oh this is how Judge Pratt runs her court. This is Judge Pratt does. Don't yell. And being able to say from the bench, officer, the only person who gets to holler in this courtroom is me. You want to speak to that person? Go over there and talk to them. Right. Now, what does that say to the people who are sitting in the courtroom? Wow. The judge just checked the officer. So she treats everybody the same in this space. Like there's nothing worse than a coward in a position of power because they won't do the right thing when it's required, which is all the time. And so 
it was a little space. It was a little court. I was giving these people, but I was like, I'm going to do the right thing until they tell me to go home. And when they tell me to go home, I'll go do something else. But it won't be the end of who I am. Right. And so that's this whole idea of neutrality of like, what do people see when you're when you behave from this position of authority? Who is influencing your decisions when you are speaking here? But I want to just point out there was there's a it's a subtlety to this, mm-hmm. which is that there were also moments on the bench where you talked about people who did disrespect you in your mm-hmm. courtroom and you understood that there was a possibility that there might be something underlying that that you needed to look for. Mm-hmm. I want to know as an authority, mm-hmm. how do you know when the moment is for you to make that call and say, hey, Miss Prosecutor, please don't speak to me that way? Mm-hmm. Or to step back and say, maybe there's something underneath that that I can't see. You have to train yourself to see and to hear, right? And so when something just doesn't seem right, it's usually not. It's usually not. And so I also know what my triggers are. I know what makes me angry. And I know when I'm beginning to feel it. I start to feel hot and my face gets hot and I'm like, whoa, whoa. That's when I know. But I also have rules for myself. If I ever had to go before a committee and explain why I did something and the answer is because they pissed me off, I had to undo it. And so it's observing. It's really taking the time to see like, hmm, this doesn't really make sense that this person's behaving this way. I mean, one of my guys, he thought he was a pirate. We had social workers in Newark Community Solutions, which we'll talk about later. And every time he came to court, he sat in the front row as if he was in charge of the ship. And one day he came late and the officer would not let him sit in the seat. Someone was sitting there. And he was literally physically pushing the officer to get to the front of the room. And I was like, wow, this is really odd. And then I thought, oh, oh, mental illness. And there's something about his identity in that front row. And so... I stopped what I was doing, and I said to the office, let him come. Let him have a seat. And somebody was sitting there. I said, move over. You got to move over because it was important for this person with mental illness to be able to get through this court session with this. So I had to, one, not be angry that he was disrupting what it was I was doing, and that also I had to intervene so that the officer knew that it was okay that he was not following his orders, which were, you can't go to the front. But I was like, no, let him go. Because there's something there that we don't initially know about. Real authority doesn't have to constantly slam and hurt you, you know? And that's what the justice system is obsessed with, just smashing people. And the reality is I want someone to do things because they don't want to disappoint me. And that very quickly became the case. It very quickly became officers would stop people in the streets and like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't give me that ticket because I'm in Judge Pratt's program and she's going to kill me. And I'm thinking... Judge Pratt's not going to kill you, but they didn't want to disappoint me because they had established a rapport where I respected them. I'm going to trust you to do what you said you're going to do. And when you're out there, you're on Judge Pratt's release. So people are talking about me when you're out there. And so it's this constant, again, this checking of the ego, but really thinking deeply about why would this person behave this way? Not normal behavior. It's not rational behavior. And Knowing your community, if you know that you serve in a community that people live under the constant threat of violence, do you know what that person had to do to get to the courthouse, to get to the office on that day? We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more on procedural justice with Judge Victoria Pratt. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. We're halfway through Judge Pratt's tenets of procedural justice. She's urged us to make sure that people feel their voices are heard, and she's imparted upon us the importance of staying neutral to all parties. Now that brings us to number three. Everyone must understand. People have the right to understand the process, understand what's required of them, and understand, most importantly, the consequences of not doing what they're supposed to do or the consequences of violating this law, the consequences of not taking your medication. Every time you're off your meds, you throw a rock at the store. There's a consequence for that. So we need to get you connected to services so that we can deal with that. The consequence of dropping out of high school is that most people who are in prison don't have a high school diploma. So you just checked off the first thing for us to send you there. Um, The municipal court helps you build what I call unaffectionately your resume. So when you get a superior court case, they have enough of these low-level offenses to give you a prison sentence. This is not unimportant because it's municipal court. It's very important because it's going to determine whether or not you get work, what kind of work, what kind of license you can get. And so what we do at this level and how quickly we are to convict people at this level. So, But that's me. I have to be thinking about this. Madam Prosecutor, do you know if this person went to high school? You just gave them an offer of this. Does this person have a high school diploma? Does this person have a job? Does this person answer all those questions before you give me an offer? Because that means you haven't looked at everything. Um, You, defense counsel, do you know your client? Did they graduate from high school? Yeah, your case is not ready. Have a seat until it is. Don't come talking to me about, oh, he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. I always hear about the wrong crowd, but the only person I have here is your client. Right. So it's it's constantly making sure people understand. Do they speak English? What I know about people who don't speak English as their first language, they be in court. Uh huh. Yes, yes, yes. And then I slip a question in there. You don't know. You need a translator. Have a seat until we can get a translator. (laughs) It requires me to slow down. It requires me to speak in plain English. You go into court and people are like, wow, what just happened here? And it happens to them. They leave, and then when they come back and haven't complied with the things that we asked them to do, we punish them. But we haven't told them anything. Right. And we haven't enrolled them in being able to hear it. No, not at all. This brings us to the fourth and final aspect of procedural justice, respect. Respect. And respect, one thinks, is the easiest. You know, when people say to me, oh, you know, Dignity, that's kind of something hokey to write about when you talk about the criminal justice system because the criminal justice system doesn't concern itself with dignity. And that's a lie because dignity is one of the most important things that it concerns itself with. And the reason we know it is because it's the first thing we strip a person of when they engage or encounter the criminal justice system. You don't feel like a full human being anymore. You don't get to speak. You don't get to explain. You don't get to do anything other than sit there in silence and pray 
that someone hasn't had a bad day. It's what we do when we hold people, the conditions that we leave them in. There's a book called um, <laughs> The Process is the Punishment. So whether you're guilty or innocent, the process is punishment. How you go through the criminal justice system before you even get to say guilty or not guilty or get found guilty or not guilty or have your case dismissed. How do I restore your dignity after I've mistreated you the entire time and then found out at the end, oh, this case is foundless. Oh, this goes away. You've already been disrespected. That we can't give you back. And then we don't get to punish you until we get to find, until you get adjudicated guilty. But we just punish you throughout the entire process. So dignity is very important to the justice system. So this idea of respect is how we speak to people, is whether we see them or not. Is that person, when the person's coming up to the bench and they're limping and you know they're compelled to be there, why does it take anything away from me to let that person sit while I do whatever I'm going to do. It does nothing. What it does is tell you that I'm acknowledging their humanity and that this person is injured right now and that they can't stand while I'm doing whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And so when I started to see the officers pull out chairs, people would come out in custody and they'd pull a chair for them to sit. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. You don't get to determine whether they're guilty or not right now. All you're dealing with is the humanity of the person who's before us, and you're treating them respectfully. And so respectfully is also understanding that the person might be suffering from a disability. Literacy might not be able to read. So how do we deal with that in a way that the person still walks out of here and has their self-respect? They can still feel, because this idea of respect is that we strip people of their dignity and respect they no longer feel like they can be productive and contributing members of society, right? We've made them less than. They already feel less than coming into the system because of all of the social ills that they deal with, poverty, poorly educated. And then we come into the justice system and then we yeah. compound that. And that's just not my job. It's not our job as the system. Our job is to, to deliver justice one way or the other. But we get caught up in all these other things that we think are supposed to be present in the process, and they're not. Well, so that brings us to Community Solutions. Newark Community Solutions, yes, our community court program. Tell us the story of how that came to exist and what it does. Oh, so when now Senator Cory Booker became the mayor in Newark, he brought in this wave of criminal justice reform and really believed that Newarkers deserved better than they were getting. And we partnered with the Center for Court Innovation. They're now the Center for Justice Innovation. And what they did was that they came in and they partnered with um, the city of Newark and the judiciary. And they went around in neighborhood meetings to say, what do you want justice to look like for your community? Much to my surprise, folks didn't come back and say, we want those drug dealers to get stiffer sentences. We want those drug addicts to get stiffer sentences. They said, we want those boys on the corner, those folks on the corner selling drugs to have jobs. We want those drug addicts who are breaking into our house. We want them to get drug treatment. Right. Because what they wanted was to restore the people, the humans in their community back, because what was happening was that they were already getting punishment from the justice system. But it wasn't changing their behavior when they came back. It didn't make them full human beings when they came back to their community to work and do all the other things. And again, these were their community members. They had their, seen their kids, their, their kids, friends, their, their friends. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so we partnered with the Center for Justice Innovation and came up with a Newark Community Solutions Community Court Program that would now allow a person to get punishment with assistance. So a person who would otherwise immediately get jail would now get social services. So that included group therapy, individual therapy, community service, and pairing them with nonprofit organizations that already existed in the community to get the services that they needed. And the community service was meaningful community service now. So now you could do community service at a church, sweeping up, sweeping around. You could go work at a food bank that you could subsequently go to or serve at a soup kitchen. So here's somebody who's been told they don't have anything to give, and then they wake up and then they go put in their hours at the soup kitchen. And then we would get rid of the money that they owed, or their case might get dismissed as a result of these things. But now they would be on track to getting better. You told me this story. No, you didn't tell me this story. You told it to me in my head because I listened to your book. (laughs) And it really stayed with me about uh, a panhandler who... um, shouldn't have been panhandling by any logical standards because he received benefits. He had a place to live. He mm-hmm. was raising a teenager. And yet he was out there doing it. Yes. And I was so angry with him because I'm like, why do you keep coming here? He could, he would get like 10 blue tickets. He had traumatic brain injury. He had gotten robbed in the city. And so he was like maybe behaved at the age of a 12-year-old. And he said, my 12-year-old son goes through our food stamps really fast. And I thought, my goodness, feeding his son, because he didn't have any drug charges. He was feeding a growing boy. And for those of you who have them... They eat a lot. (laughs) They eat a lot. They eat a lot. They eat a lot. Yeah. Right? And so something as normal as feeding a growing boy requires him to panhandle. Yep. But he gets his consequence is facing 30 days of jail on each one of those blue tickets he gets. And it's a lot of them. So when the prosecutor gets them, she's pissed. I'm upset because you're back here. And so we send him to do his community service, and he doesn't have the capacity to work because he's an adult with serious traumatic brain injury, and it took him about a year to learn how to speak again. Yeah. And now he goes to this place as a food bank, and he helps prepare these bags of foods for others. But now he knows I can go here and I can get groceries. I can literally get food in my community and not have to panhandle. It occurs to me as you speak how you can lift the framework that we spoke about today mm-hmm. and lay it upon any organization or any institution any. in which leadership yes. is required. And yes, And it should be a priority. Treating people with dignity and respect should be a priority at any institution that you work in, any institution that people have to be served or or there's an output, this idea that you see the humanity in the people who come to your company and they spend more time with you than they do with their families. And so what happens when you have a toxic environment is that you strip the dignity of the people who come there to service your product, to put your product into the world, who have a community because you are paying them. But all of that you're responsible for. So we are responsible for toxic 
environments and dealing with them, right? Because they grow and fester in places that aren't being treated. And so, yes, if you make sure people are heard, even if you're not going to take their advice, listen to them. Let them speak. Treat them with neutrality. Okay, so my last question for yes, you. Ma'am. Judge Pratt, our entire year's mm-hmm. theme is devoted to optimism, pragmatic optimism. Yes. So personal question, do you consider yourself an optimist? I do, but I also consider myself a realist. I believe what I see and what the world has taught me. What I've seen is that when we consciously make an effort to treat people as if they're full humans with rights, it changes not only their behavior, but most importantly, it changes you. It changes you. And then you go on to improve. So, yeah, I'm an optimist, but I know it works. That was Judge Victoria Pratt, Executive Director of Odyssey Impact. We'll link in the show notes to her book, her nonprofit, and to her TED Talk. Check them all out. And come to office hours this week. We'll go live again from the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern. This week, we'll talk about the episode and we'll talk about procedural justice, how it applies to our own circumstances, our offices, our families, our communities. If you need help finding us, always feel free to email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you a link. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review anywhere you listen. It really helps people find us. We appreciate it so much. So much that I love to invite our producer, Sarah Storm, to join us every once in a while and share one. If I happen to read yours on the show, drop me a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com. I'll send you six months of LinkedIn premium. Anyhow. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Jesse. So, Sarah, we've got a great one today, and you're about to learn why I chose it. Will you read it? Sure. This one is from We Last B, who says, I've been listening to the show for the past two years. I've always enjoyed the journey. Great guests, great host, and also great guest hosts like Sarah Storm. I've enjoyed it all. Please keep up the good work. I always learn so much. Sarah is a great guest host, isn't she, Sarah? Thank you. Hey, thanks, We Lesby. I agree. It's great when Sarah guest hosts. If you haven't heard her episode with Guillermo del Toro, check it out. And now, Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show. It's engineered by Asaf Gidron. Rafa Faria, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, Michaela Greer, and Victoria Taylor are the beating heart of our production community. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.